Hello and welcome again to Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, back after a week in the monster pit, here with superhero Teos Abadia. Hey, Teos. Hey, Sean. Uh, I see, you know, folks don't get to see the video like I do, but that's an impressive amount of monster gore that you are drenched in. Oh, it is. It tastes good, too. <laughs> tastes, that's excellent. Yeah, it's it's got a cooling effect, which we all need. Uh, right cooling, yeah. Do you know how, how hot this show is? Uh, how hot is this show? This this show is so hot. Yeah. I had to take a cold shower before we recorded. Yeah. Not to mention the 115 degree weather you're trying to survive without air conditioning. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is a, a little uh, a little bit of the climate change is, has come to visit Portland yeah. with highs that are uh, like five degrees above the record previously and maybe more today. So we'll see. It, it is it is hot. It is. Yeah. It is very, very hot. Um it's so hot, I might not wear pants. We'll see. Yeah, I was going to whine about, you know, the 90-degree weather we're getting here in western New York, but I really shouldn't when other people are, you know, 15 or 20 degrees warmer. When... Yeah, I'm Googling, yeah, Googling things like how to keep chickens alive, and, and it's really interesting. It's, 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 a, it's a whole other scale once you get, you know, it's not 101, it's 112. It's, it's temperatures that belong in weird areas with names like Death Valley, Right. You know, or Arizona, if you've heard of that <laughs> mythic place. Right. Yeah. Or Florida. <laughs> yeah. Those strange exotic lands. King of humidity. That's, that's I yeah. believe, their state motto. It's true. It's true. And I want to thank Jim Davis for coming on and, and helping out last week. Uh, I actually listened to the podcast. And you guys did a great job. I was wondering, what the heck am I doing there? Uh, I should just hand things over. Same thing. I mean, it might just be Jim's show from now on. So. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> but uh, if you missed last week's, go, go back and give it a listen because uh, Jim Davis did a great job. And now we are going to step into that land we know as D&D Gaming News. So we heard about the first D&D Live stream game, which included the likes of Jack Black and Jay and Silent Bob and, you know, all sorts of celebrities. And the second uh, stream has been announced. This stream is all WWE all the time. Featuring Ember Moon, Xavier Woods, Mace, Tyler Breeze as players. And the DM, none other than Abria, I can't say this, Yengar? I think it's Yengar. Okay. And but I... I have not watched. She just had the first uh, critical role role right. show of the summer, and it was apparently amazing. and And so it's on my to watch list. So they're calling it, you know, the summer of Iyengar, and yeah. uh, I think it is uh, for good reason. Yeah, apparently, really good DMing skills. Yep, straight from the the critical role show over to the D and D live stream with the WWE All Star celebrities. So there you go. That will be July 16th and 17th on D&D Live, which you can watch via the G4 network, the WOTC channels, or on the Peacock. Wow. Mind-blowing. Good times. Uh, we have talked in previous shows about the Strixhaven Unearthed Arcana subclasses, and James, uh, Jim and uh, Teos did a live or, or walkthrough of it last week. The survey is up, so now you too can uh, leave your mark on the future by going and taking that survey and letting everyone know what you think about those subclasses. Anything to add there, Teos? 
Uh, you know, we might talk about this later, but I have hit a little bit of a wall in subclasses. I feel like we have a good number now in the game. I don't, mm -hmm. but maybe I'm wrong. Um, in that maybe subclasses are just, maybe they're supposed to be N plus one number of them, like an ever increasing ratcheting upwards number of them. And you're just, you're not supposed to know them. They're not maybe supposed to be iconic. Maybe they're just supposed to be like the way you characterize your character, like anything else. Yeah. Because there are so many of them now. Right. It's, it's that uh, disparity between these rules elements as, as mechanical rules and these rules elements as ways to build a cool character. And you can never have too much flavor. Right. But you can have too much rules. Yeah. And, you know, so you come up with a good idea, but putting mechanics with those, with those uh, cool, flavorful, fun uh, ideas get harder and harder and harder to do. Yeah. And I love the concept of Strixhaven. So this is not, please, please don't, you know, anyone listening, don't think that what I'm saying is these are terrible subclasses that no, there were things I liked and didn't like about them when I try to be like a critical analyst of the design work in them. Mm -hmm. But it just, it just, and I love the Strixhaven concept of being a member of one of these schools. And I think a subclass is a good way to do that. It's just that it, it, it hits me the enormity of how many subclasses the game now has. Mm -hmm. And and I'm I'm used to I think in my mind subclasses were always like a like on a more iconic type thing, and there was I think there was a time when my brain tried to memorize the names of every subclass because that was like a type of character, right? And and I think that's becoming impossible. Yep, I th it, I it think, has been for some time. <laughs> I think you're right, and and I think we will talk a little bit about it as we get into our regular segment where we talk about the character options from uh, Ravenloft. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, a new 5e set of adventures are going to be released that are based on Magic the Gathering. So let me try to run this down and tell you, you catch me if I'm wrong here. There will be five different adventures coming. The first one will be the week of June 29th, so coming up shortly. Uh, Magic the Gathering always gives fiction and lore to go along with their new sets yep. um so so it makes sort of it gives you a a patina of story over the games that you play and in this set these adventures are going to replace those stories uh, yeah that's that seems to be what what wizards is is indicating is that instead of trying to just give us fiction they're going to give us adventures that will slowly introduce things which is really cool if that's going to be like on the wizards magic the gathering website to like tell people to download adventures that are magic players like that could be some cool crossover yeah and you know we're all going to the same website that's a neat crossover yep but getting eyes in new places that's the that's the marketing motto and that's one way to do it so it sounds like these adventures will be free and run about 15 to 20 pages each. And these scenarios are designed for characters from levels 8 to 10. So it's not a beginner's uh, thing. It's something that you're going to want to be you know, at least steeped in, in the rules a bit and, and be ready and willing to run or play those higher level adventures. And, and but, that's a little strange, right? Like, yeah. why, why a high level? 
Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Huh. It's okay. I mean, I could think of a few reasons why you might want to, just in terms of the content. Uh, mm-hmm. But for people who are always thinking about on ramps and new avenues of of marketing, it would make more sense to go like one to three. But right. we'll see, and and maybe there's there's a good reason for you can get more story uh, and a little bit more threat, I think, out of an eight to ten adventure. So it also eight to ten allows you to hit the CRs of monsters that may be depicted in the art there of the Magic the Gathering cards as well, right? Things like yep. beholders. When you stop and look at like some of the really famous things they tend to be in this in this higher level range and and you can encounter them as solo monsters when you get your character levels high enough so yeah. it might might be that yep do you want to talk about the cards that have been revealed yeah so this is we heard and, and reported on this a few weeks back that there was a mechanic that was go to the dungeon some of the cards would say things like when you've gone to a dungeon or completed a dungeon so everybody started going, All right, what's this? Because that doesn't exist in Magic the Gathering. So everybody smelled some new mechanic coming in. And, and indeed, the mechanic has been broken down a fair bit in a, a YouTube video and blog post that's on the Wizards of the Coast Magic the Gathering site, um, that there are going to be these cards called dungeon cards, and they don't go into your normal deck of cards. You have them out in the game, sort of as if it was your sideboard, but they also don't count against your sideboard. They're just sort of out there. And when a card allows you to go to a dungeon, you then choose one of them and you go to it. And it looks physically kind of like a set of rooms, all one after linked to the next. But it's also like a flowchart. So you start at the top and you must complete that by doing a thing, whatever that thing is that it says on the dungeon card. And then you can weave through the iterative layers of the dungeon. And sometimes there'll be choices. You can go left or right. Mm. You can't double back. So you you just did the left branch, for example, of the dungeon. And you get through to the end. And the dungeons are uh, Lost Mine of Fandelver, Tomb of Annihilation, and Dungeon of the Mad Mage. And so it gives you that evocative feel of a dungeon crawl as you go through. It unlocks benefits for doing the, the, the completing the dungeon. And other cards feed off of them, either letting you go to them or rewarding you for completing them. So they showed like a card that it can attack twice because you've completed a dungeon. Oh, yeah. So um, I think that's pretty neat. Uh, they've shown pictures of all kinds of art, all kinds of dungeons. And most importantly, Sean, as yeah. you know, mm-hmm. they showed art of a flump card. It's a rare, so I mean, I'm buying this. So there you go. It is now the best game ever. Best um, game ever. Retroactively, <laughs> the, uh, Magic is the best game ever because there is now a flump card. It's true. It's Officially true. It's, it's, in Magic, yep. It has elevated itself. And Watsi was clear that even though this set is coming out, the canon of D&D and the canon of Magic the Gathering will remain separate except for these crossovers that are happening now yeah it's interesting that they're they're thought of as separate universes which flies a little bit in the face of say like the penny arcade acquisitions incorporated jeremy crawford thing where they went to ravnica from Waterdeep, um and obviously you can take your characters to ravnica and theros and things like that and i guess theros is a little more meant to be make a character here rather than travel there but mm-hmm. but it, it's yeah, I find that kind of interesting that they they want to keep the the yeah. canon separate, and and that's probably good. I mean, I think if you started to take Temple of Elemental Evil and say that there is you know 
a planeswalker there behind it all. Like that would, yeah. That's not chocolate and peanut butter. That's kind of messing with stuff. And so I, I think that's probably a good call. Yeah, chocolate and gravel. <laughs> yes. Uh, so uh, Wiz Kids is releasing a new D and D tabletop game, and I read that and went, huh. Yeah. And uh, it's called Dungeon Scrawlers: Heroes of Undermountain. And I went double, huh? But I did not read any further. So let me know what this is all about. It, it is hard to figure out exactly what it is, but I think it's some sort of a game where you get a sort of wet erase type dungeon board and you sort of draw on it. I, you know, like there's some things that when you draw on them or, or when you wet them, they like show things. Okay. Yeah. I think it's one of those types of things that it's a, it's a kind of, they're a, a genre of these things for kids. I, and so I think that as you're drawing on it with your pen, you're not allowed to lift. You're sort of exploring and you might hit monsters or treasure or whatever. And I think your class is determining whether how good or bad that is for you is okay. I think what's going on. And then eventually you weave your way through this maze like dungeon and you draw the boss. And, and I don't know if everybody has to get to the boss or, one person triggers the boss, but when you reach the boss, then you've reached the end and you can see who got the most points. Hmm. And it was a little bit weird because on one hand, this, this article was really sort of saying like, Oh, it's an intro to D and D. And whenever I, any details I read, I'm like, this isn't D and D at all, hmm. but you know, okay. Maybe it's not a way to learn D and D, but I guess the way with young kids, you could have fun and reinforce dungeons yeah. are neat. You know, being right. a rogue is neat, that sort of thing. And it's 25 bucks and you get 10 maps, but I don't know how long that lasts. And so we'll have to see more of, of what this okay. game is like. But, yeah. you know, it's another, it's clearly branded. It has Heroes of Undermountain as the title. So Yeah. Awesome. Uh, Teos put this in the show notes, not me, but I will read it. Uh, <laughs> Ghostfire Gaming has a design blog. It is true. Uh, at Ghostfire, we have fired up a, we have Ghostfired up a design Ghostfire blog. Up where we go into details on the way we do things at, at Ghost Fair Gaming. And so some of it has to do with like Kickstarter fulfillment and, and our products folks talking about how they make things. And when my turn came around to write the blog, uh, I decided to talk about monsters because by golly, we did a Kickstarter for that. And I'm in the middle of doing a lot of design review and editing and, all sorts of coordination on the, the book. So I talked about, uh, talked about the book, what's going to be in it, who some of the people who've worked on it and uh, sort of the process that we went through for making a good monster. Yeah. I, I liked how you broke down the processes and you sort of compared it to a machine with inputs and outcomes, both mechanical and narrative and you, you talked about how monsters are sort of in this interesting design space that has functional responsibility because you have to do, they sort of have mechanical constructs, right? Hit points, attack bonuses that are, that are the meat of the mechanical interaction in the game. But they are also dramatic hurdles, their tension, they tell a story, they allow characters to tell their story. I thought that was really neat how you broke that down. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah, this is what my brain does when I can't sleep at night, it, you know, mm -hmm. um, imagines all these different scenarios of how to describe what we do, <laughs> yeah. this, this, uh, this thing we do called game design. So 
uh, yeah, you can give it a, a check at uh, ghostfiregaming.com. And if you go to the blog, it's called Rumblings from the Word Mines. Yeah, that was excellent. Recommended. Thanks. And Ghostfire is not uh, just relaxing, right? It doesn't seem like it's vacation over there. No, I, I, I complain about how hard I work, but everybody at Ghostfire is, is working hard because we have a program called uh, Forged with Ghostfire. So we partner with other content developers to help them bring their projects to life. And one of the projects was just lifed. Uh, literally an, uh, three and a half hours ago, a Kickstarter called Dungeons of Drakenheim went live. Uh, it is a setting and an adventure written by uh, a pair of gentlemen called the Dungeon Dudes. They do a great uh, stream where they give advice and reviews and, you know, sort of talk through, teach D&D. I've heard many people say, oh, yeah, I learned D&D by watching the Dungeon Dudes. And not only do they do this show with uh, news and reviews and, and, you know, design ideas and things like that. They also do a, a live stream show and their show is set in this city called Drakenheim. And so what they've done is taken this setting that they created and that they play their game in and made it so everyone can play there. Uh, it was a Drakenheim is a city that was struck by meteors. And so in the game, you can explore this now ruined city where there are many factions that are vying for power. So you can, you can uh, ally with certain factions, but if you do, you're going to be instantly the foes of different factions. So you can play factions against each other. Uh, the meteors brought magic, but it's uncontrollable magic. So you can use the magic that the meteors brought, but it's also a corrupting power. So you have to be very careful uh, to use it too much because you could become uh, corrupted by it. The Kickstarter went live, like I said, like three hours ago, and it's now at 20, oh, sorry, $225,000. Wow. With almost 2,000 backers. So I think it's going to be okay. I think it's going to make it. I, uh, I'm going to right now challenge this uh, Forged by Ghostfire program to fund my paper bag adventure. Uh, where everyone will get one paper bag mm -hmm. and you must make an adventure out of it. That's a kit. And, uh, I'd like to see how high we can fund this. I'm pretty sure we can go pretty high. I think so. I think so. So <laughs> you, you do have a month to back this. Uh, but if you get in on the first 48 hours, you do get an extra bonus. Uh, so you can go check that out. That sounds great. Yeah. Uh, Origins registration has opened, even if their policies are a bit unclear. <laughs> you want to take this one, Teos? Yeah, uh, there's been a lot of discussion uh, recently around conventions that are trying to reopen uh, as as we get closer to those dates, and they they you know have to announce their policies or not. Um, and and a big part of the question is, well, you know, do you have to be vaccinated to attend? And uh, Gamma has. Gamma has opened the registration, uh, and kind of the big things they're saying is, hey, children can come free. Thursday is free. Uh, and I guess we're still under the original guidelines, which are that masks are required, but none of the latest updates mention these standards. 
So it's a bit of a guessing game and, and, and a little interesting because, of course, children under 12 cannot get vaccinated. Um, so they they cannot be protected from the virus at this time. And, of course, getting a mask on a kid is the hardest person mm-hmm. to get a mask on, yeah. mostly. Mostly. Um, yeah. And uh, and so it, it's, yeah, it, it brings to mind, it, it raises all these questions about what these organizations should do. While, of course, we, we acknowledge that they're in a very tough situation financially, there is that question of what is the right policy to do and what should it look like. Of course, some people, uh, there are very, very small number of people that cannot get vaccines for, for health reasons. Um, but, you know, what is what is the answer? Should nobody go to these conventions? Should we require vaccines? Should we? Yeah. So it's creating some of that discussion here. Yep. And, and the same speak- is true. Yeah. yeah. Go I was going to say, <laughs> speaking of PAX West. <laughs> yeah, the same is true around PAX West, where that is September 3rd to 6th, and They've opened for panel submissions, and we are told face masks are required, and there's going to be temperature screening, reduced occupancy, which is probably going to happen on its own anyway. But again, no vaccines are required, so some folks are saying, I don't know that I can go to PAX West because that's and that maybe not contributing to a safe environment. And PAX is famous because we've seen it erupt before with um, yeah. uh, communicable diseases, and even if it's cold, it can go through and just tear into people. Yeah. Uh, to the point where we we would laugh about it. if you go to PAX, you have to say hi with a fist bump or you know elbow bump or just nod uh, because the, the PAX plague was sort of a thing that we would talk about, and now we're in an actual plague. Um, it is uh, it is something to to consider. So we'll see what happens. There is still PAX online July fifteenth to eighteenth, as we reported last week. Free badges for that, uh, paid badges if you want some extra swag benefits. So there are always options. Uh, Origins, I think, still has Origins online. So there are ways to to attend. And there are conventions uh, like GameholeCon that are requiring vaccines where you know that everybody there uh, will need to get the vaccine. And then if the local mandate is no masks, at least you know everybody around you is vaccinated, so the risks are much lower. True. True. And we'll have more about conventions as they come online or go offline again yeah. uh, in the coming months. And Sean, that's kind of the end of our news, but I wanted to quickly speak to something that's been going on. And, and you and I, you know, we know that words have power and, and that's why we don't run around saying a Sarah all day long mm-hmm. uh, because sometimes to summon, to name evil is to summon it. But there's been a, a, a whole thing going on this last couple, this last week or so with the reemergence of an entity uh, and and a lot of ugliness around it. And and so I, I don't think we want to name it or, or go into it in any great depth, except to say that my recommendation to folks, when you see things like that, that are attacks on our industry, uh, its diversity, its strength, its recent growth, that that's an opportunity for all of us to, to think hard on that, learn from those discussions, uh, listen to others who are affected, and, and then take some kind of action that you feel comfortable with to ensure that our industry keeps on improving and keeps on becoming more diverse, more of a safe place for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you want to say anything, Sean. Yeah, no, it, the day before all of this fell through, broke out before the train wreck began, I posted on Twitter and I just, I was just thinking randomly, it's great how much this hobby has grown in the, in, in not just the number of people playing, but in the types of people playing and just the diversity and diversity and not just of the people, but of ways that you can 
enjoy the hobby, whether it's streaming, watching streams, doing crafts, creating recipes for cookbooks that are that are gaming themed. You know, all of this stuff is becoming more prevalent, more accepted and loved by more people. And so I just yeah. posted that you know, on Twitter saying this was great. And the next day, <laughs> the tweet that you're talking about or, or the interview yeah. that you're talking about uh, came out. And I was like, well, that that was quick. That was a very short lived uh, moment of of everyone coming together in the community. So, I, um, yeah, I agree yeah. with Teo. So that, that's all I could say. And uh, politics will always be in our game. And I think one thing that happens when we look back through the lens of nostalgia is we might incorrectly say, there didn't used to be politics, politics in our game, but it's because things were so same and so stated from one perspective that it appeared to be non-political. Right. Uh, but it actually was, right? Because all those voices were being drowned out and kept to a single voice and a single theme and a single message. And our game has gotten nothing but stronger and better as it has. You cannot look at any... You cannot look at the old days of D&D in any way and say that they were stronger then. The games are not better written. There, there wasn't a better understanding of mechanics or rules or storytelling right. or anything like that. You might have a preference in style, or, you know, and I might and you might and whatever. The next person has a particular preference. That's all well and good. Mm -hmm. But just objectively looking at how things are created or written or published or the reach they had or any of that, uh, really the only case in which uh, old D&D had an advantage was that, as I've said, it did manage to create branded baloney. Mm -hmm. And that is the heights to which this game has never managed to reach. Yeah. But outside of branded baloney, I mean, I everything about RPGs these days is better. I think we're getting some branded baloney on, uh, on, <laughs> on that, but a different kind. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to, just, to, just to sum up what Teos is talking about, um, if you think that politics is not involved in everything you do, it is only because the politics of the situation are politics that you agree with. So you don't see any problem with it. Um, there's politics and everything because politics is more than just politicians. It's about power. It's about power balance. You know, politics is a term that means a lot of different things. Uh, so just because a certain topic has come into the game does not mean that it's any more political of a game than it was back then. Yep. So there you go. Now, with no further ado, we can get into Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft. And since we are rebels, since we know no bounds, we didn't start with Chapter 1. No. We just We just went right to Chapter 4, did that, did a review of the adventure House of Lament. And now we're going to start with Chapter 1, where we talk about character creation. Uh, just to preface all of this that we're about to talk about, um, I want to remind people that when we look at these things, we're looking at them through our own personal lenses of preference, of thoughts on game design. Uh, so if we sound like we're being overly critical, I promise you it's not any more critical than we are of the, of our own writing. Uh, I, I will say much worse about my own work than I will say about anyone else's work ever. But in order to discuss these things with a game mechanical lens, we really do need to say, this might not be the best, or this might be problematic. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, that doesn't mean we're right. 
It just means that is what the lens that we're looking through at the moment is showing us. Uh, so I, I yep. wanted to get that out of the way first. And the second, I wanted to mention a tweet that Dan Dillon made a while ago. Dan is a Wizards of the Coast employee, you know, one of their game designers, one of my favorite people in the industry. Yeah, one of our heroes. Uh, super smart. Uh, he he put a tweet out that was not in reply to anything, but it, it spoke to me, so I wanted to mention it. it. And I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going to try to remember. But it basically said, it sounds like some people don't want players to be able to do things. <laughs> and while that was very general, it wasn't talking to any specific topic, it is something to keep in mind uh, as we go through these game design discussions because it is important as a game designer to create things for the players to do. Mm -hmm. But that always has to be balanced with are what we are allowing them to do going to end up be detrimental to the game as a whole. And that's both in terms of, of just how it works at the table, how it works socially, right? A, a rule written brilliantly, but that takes five minutes to adjudicate is not something that we're going to want at the table, not because it's too powerful, not because it's not flavorful, but because it just takes a long time. It slows a game down. People might lose interest. So all of these things that we're talking about all come together into, into those discussions. Uh, so, yes, we want to let players do new things. We want to let them have fun. But we also need to always temper that with what does the uh, – the procedure, what does the flow of the game, uh, how has that changed based on this rule? Yeah. Excellent. Yep. So with that, I will get right into chapter one, uh, which is about character creation. Uh, lineages, dark gifts, subclasses, and backgrounds. I don't know if we'll get through all of these today. Well, and I'm thinking we can do it at a little bit of a higher level, so maybe we can do it. But, okay, but, um, we'll give it a shot. The point of this chapter, right, is that it's it's creating a number of things, and it gives us, as you just mentioned, a whole list of things mm -hmm. that we can use so that that horror story we talked about when we were reviewing Chapter 4 comes to life from the player side, not just the DM side, right? So you don't show up just playing a clown unless it's a tragic clown or a yeah. creepy clown, <laughs> but you're not going to show up, you know, with like the happy go lucky halfling that's fearless maybe, uh, and, and expect to contribute to the, to the horror part. But if you come in playing a, you know, investigator that went through a lot and uh, sees spirits. Well, now we're talking right now. We're part of the, the game. And so this is kind of the player side of how to attain all this, right? Right. Yeah. So as Teo said in chapter four, it said to the DM, hey, find out what your players want and what their limits are and what might scare their characters and so on. And this chapter says, hey, players, the DM is probably going to come to you and ask, what do you want and what, what experiences are you looking for? So here are some things to think about. Um, so the Haunted Heroes is the first little section where there are no rules per se, but they uh, provide for you a list of these questions or concepts to keep in mind as you are creating your character. And um, I just so, want to pause, Sean, and say yeah. that, that this is, you don't often get this in a and d book. True. And I don't know if that's, you know, folks like Wes Schneider coming in or Amanda Harmon with new ideas, you know, a new view. 
but this is great. Like that, I, this idea of let's really help the players lean into this campaign and, and provide all this useful advice. Like, I think this is really cool. I really like this. Right. I, it's, it's almost like a flip has switched in someone or several someones. Switch has Wizards, flip. Sure. A flip has switched. Is that what I said? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that, <laughs> Hey, these are also user manuals. So let's, let's take an educational approach to this and in education, right? You say, this is what you are about to learn. This is why you're about to learn it. Here's yeah. what I'm going to teach you. Here is what I have just taught you. This is why I taught you. So, you know, it goes through all those steps yeah. and that, that's what this does. Uh, so right off the bat, we get a bullet list uh, called habits of heroes. Uh, and it makes the point when playing, when planning to play a scary adventure, create a character prepared to be scared. Makes perfect sense. Don't play a, a horror based game. If you don't want to play a horror based game. Right. Um, so the habits of the heroes are focus on the game, which it means it, unless you're paying attention, you won't know when the scary parts are coming. You will lose the sense of dread that is supposed to be building up while you're, you know, playing Candy Crush on your phone while the DM is giving, uh, you know, giving a reading of the box text or whatever. Right. So keep your focus on the game. Uh, limit comedy. This is a tough one uh, <laughs> because I think like 75% of D&D games are all about the comedy that happens away from the table. Uh, so, you know, put a limit on that. It doesn't mean you can't have any comedy because, you know, grim gallows humor has its place in, uh, has its place in horror, but, if you're constantly cracking jokes and doing your typical Monty Python lines, right. it's pulling away from the mood that you're trying to create. And yeah, and I would say here that that's a good point that it, it could have said here, the type of comedy matters, right? Like when it's dry gallows humor, that can work quite well. Right. Right. Cause it can, it can just give you a little brief moment to reset a scene yeah. versus slapstick, right? Like that's where yeah. it, right. it just takes you out of the scene and the scene has to rebuild to get there. And then we see that in movies, right? Where that's not that there isn't any humor, but the humor is placed in a certain way and it's a certain type of humor so that it works with the rest of the scene. Yep. Uh, next bullet was player fears versus character fears. And we, you know, they talked about this in chapter four as well, which is, People do horror for different reasons, and it's very hard to, in a game, make the player scared, and the player might not want to be scared, versus making the character scared, where the player can control the fear and how the character reacts to that fear. Uh, so the more you can keep the fear factor in-game as opposed to out-of-game, yeah. unless the, the players want to be terrified then you can obviously do that, but that's different than running it in the game. Yeah. Uh, next bullet was consent is a priority. Uh, not, not surprising uh, based on what we said in chapter four, get everyone's buy-in, set the limits of what is allowable and what is acceptable uh, in a horror based game. And once all the players are on board, then you can go ahead and, and work within those confines. You want to cover 
couple of yeah hours. so then it comes know what's too far um and that's always important to know how to address concerns when it gets to be a little too much um it again points to chapter four um we get add to your own terror and this is really great this is the kind of thing that i'm just you know very few horror supplements tell you this it's your your ability to add to it um but we see this if you watch you know really capable players doing live streams, whether it's horror or not, they will lean into these things, right? They will expose their own uh, foibles, their own weaknesses for the DM to play off, right? So you can make the situation worse for your character. Oh, well, I'm afraid of spider webs. So walking through here really has me on edge, right? And that creates a neat, even better scene. It heightens the scene from what's already there with this spider web filled corridor or something, right? And, um, and and you can even say things like, my character will just lose her mind if a uh, if a skeletal hand comes out between the webs, right? <laughs> and to just you know serving it up for the DM to alley oop at home, and 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 that's uh, yeah. a great thing to do, right? And 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 uh, uh, I think it gives the example here that you can say like, does the creature have hooves, right? Because that's something that really scares me, and the DM can say, oh yes, yes it does, uh, right? Yeah. Oh no, yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know. Create, help create the world around you yeah. to make it more terrifying, for sure. And last one's really good. Enjoy the struggle that and you shouldn't expect to go through a horrible story unscathed. So uh, knowing that you're going to suffer along the way and sort of enjoying how that goes, right? And that's something that I think applies to many different types, too. Like if you're playing Tomb of Annihilation and you know that this is a kind of grinder adventure where you could probably die then every trap, whether you escape it or not, can be an enjoyable experience because you know that this is what you're what, what it's about. It's gonna present these really tough situations and you may bite it. So yeah. Enjoy it while it goes. Yeah, I've had over the years, I've had players, you know, in from first edition on who said, Ooh, I wanna play uh Ravenloft or, you know, Curse of Strahd or some adventure like that. And I realized right away, just from knowing the player, that they would not enjoy this because they always want to be in control. They want to know exactly what their spell does and they, they don't like surprises. They don't like being out of control. If you try to do anything that takes any sort of agency away from them mechanically or story-wise, they get very upset. And so my answer to them is usually, why don't we play this other game? Uh, <laughs> Tomb of Horrors is maybe the classic adventure that's most like that, right? Where yeah. people say, oh, I've heard about this. I want to take my strongest character through it. No, 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 you don't. You no, want to yeah. take a pre-gen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you want to come into it knowing that this is going to be unfair. Right. And we're going to laugh at how unfair it is, not, yep. you know, let it ruin our experience. And then it yep. ends up being a much more enjoyable thing. Right. And in, and the same thing goes for DMs as well. If If a DM that you know wants to run a player versus DM game and they want to run you through something horror like this, where they get a lot of power, you want to be careful uh, if you know that they are abusers of that power. This might not be the the type of game for them to to run you through. Yeah. Uh, so that's the haunted hero section. Anything about that? No, I think that's good. Okay. You want to talk about lineages for for a moment? Yeah. So these are three lineages that we saw uh, as unearthed arcana a while back. Um, the Dampir, which is a basically lesser vampire type lineage, 
Uh, and all of these are lineages, so they use those new rules where you get to decide what your ability score is. It's not treated like a typical race. Um, and, and the concept is it sort of explains what you are, and you're no longer, um, you know, an elf or whatever, but, but you may have been so in a different time. And so we can get things like, you know, art that shows uh, it's a mix of, you know, it gives a hint as to what they used to be beforehand. Um, the Dampir is known for its hunger. And uh, you get a table of what your, your hunger is. So maybe you hunger for dreams or life energy or cerebral spinal fluid. Um, like you do. And then, yeah, as you do. And then uh, we have our origins where it helps you understand what came before. And I like this a lot because it, it's, it helps you establish that story, which you really want, right? If, if you became a vampiric type creature... We want to know why, like what happened, right? And so this helps you think through how it, it came to be. Um, you know, was one of your parents a vampire? Uh, did you survive being attacked by one but were forever changed? Um, and so this gives you the idea. And then we get some ideas of what domains of dread uh, they tend to be in. Um, and then we get the actual rules of them. These are pretty similar to what we saw in the past. The sort of interesting part here. Um, I think is you get spider climb, mm -hmm. which is pretty neat. Yeah. Uh, you don't need to breathe and you have a bite that deals one D four plus con, uh, you have advantage on that attack if you are under half your hit points and based on your proficiency, you bonus, you can that number of times per day regain, uh, hit points based on the damage you do, or you can get, what is it? A bonus to your attack roll. Or you can get right, or you can get a bonus to your attack roll, uh, equal to yeah. the piercing damage that you did with that bite. Yeah. Uh, just a reminder: you cannot sneak attack with a bite. Yeah. Because it's not a finesse weapon. Uh, so yeah, you don't want your rogue to try to talk you into, oh, well, I do a D four plus con plus sixty six piercing damage with my bite, and I oh, I heal all that. Um, or yeah, no. I just did 72 it's not a points monk of weapon, right? It's not a monk weapon. I just did 72 points of damage. So I'm plus 72 on my next attack roll <laughs> or next ability check. Uh, that's not how it works. That's funny. So, um, so, yeah. yeah. So other than that, I'm, I'm super happy with, with the Dampier, it seems. I mean, the only thing for me is just story-wise, it's a little interesting of, you know, okay, I'm going to start this uh, tale of investigators on the trail of a werewolf. Cool, I'm half vampire. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's yep. always that aspect of it. Right. Th this, to me, seems more something that might happen along the way than yeah. that it does. And we do get uh, some words in here that talk about how these could be imposed upon you. So you could, it could be that during play, you would gain these uh, and then change yourself to being this which causes a little bit, I don't think it's a, a big deal, but it does, sometimes there's a little bit of barrier between how things are written. Mm -hmm. As I was reading these, I was thinking, what if this was a change? I, mean, I don't know that it's super is written to explain that, but it's fine. Yeah. Um, but I, I find that alternative more interesting for a story. Yeah. Um, we had the same thing in, in fourth edition. We had uh, the, the same kind of, you know, we had a, uh, the uh, the I've died before class, uh, race we had the vampire race you know all of these and and they'd just be jarring in certain adventures right when you're level one and it's like a vampire and a returned one all you know yeah walk into a bar 
Mm-hmm. Okay. We need you to help us with goblins. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, we could go and talk about horror itself and, you know, what... For me, horror works best when the people going into the horror are sort of innocent and wide-eyed and scared and overcome that. Right. You could definitely tell a story of people being corrupted, but like Teo says, if you start corrupted, it's sort of... you're. It's not horror anymore to me because the people involved in the horror are the horror. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Now, if it, sh- if it happens over the life of the campaign and people are transformed and people gain or lose powers because of it, then it's part of the story. And it's part of the ongoing narrative rather than the starting point. Yep. Uh, so next is the Hexblood. So a Hexblood is generally someone who has entered a bargain with a hag to gain their deepest wish, but eventually find themselves transformed because of it. Um, if you get this, there's like the others, there's tables that allow you to roll on it uh, or choose one. But it's similar lines to the damn fear. For some reason, you have been changed. Uh, you actually become a fae type creature rather than uh, a humanoid. Uh Looking strictly at the abilities, I I think they're fun and flavorful and balanced for yeah. the most part. Um, one of the – you get dark vision, but one of the big new things is you get something called the eerie token. <laughs> so as a bonus action, you can essentially shed a piece of yourself and imbue that piece of you, whether it's a flake of skin or a piece of hair, uh, with power. And until you finish a long rest, uh, you have certain abilities with this token. So if you give the token to someone else as an action, you can send telepathic messages to the creature holding or carrying the token as long as you're within 10 miles of it. And it can be up to 25 words. So you're basically giving them a one-way walkie-talkie. Yeah, uh, but but using a piece of, like, your nail or something right, like that. Right, uh, like pull a toenail off and give it to yeah. them, which I think is incredibly creepy and awesome. Uh, the second thing you can do is remote viewing. So if you are within 10 miles of your token, you can enter a trance. While you're in that trance uh, for up to one minute, uh, or if it ends early because you dismiss it or are incapacitated, during that trance, you can see or hear from the token as if you are located where it is. So while you are using your senses uh, at the token's location, you are blind and deaf to your own surroundings. And when the trance ends, that token is destroyed. So you and I think this is once. really cool. I, I did do wish it would clarify, you know, if this nail is in the palm of a hand, is my view obscured? You know, if it's in a bag, and, and my guess is it's meant to be as if you're standing in this location and not seeing through the token itself. Yeah. So it, it would be unobstructed of view, you know. But because um, I could see some DMs sort of just being difficult with it. Yeah. I think the point is for it to be able to see clearly. Yeah. Well, yeah, if, if if the DM is involved as a storyteller, uh, then they can you know do all sorts of things with it. Yes, you can't see through it because it's in someone's pocket, but you can hear everything clearly or, you know, just something to make the story work uh, would be would be cool. Uh, another ability you get as a hex blood is hex magic. You can cast disguise self and hex with this trait. Um, once you cast either of these spells, you can't cast them again until you finish a long rest. Uh, you can use intelligence 
wisdom or charisma as your spell casting ability for them. And you can also cast the spells using any spell slots you may have. And I like after that, there is this becoming a hag sidebar and, and it has a nice kind of piece of lore um, that hags can undertake a ritual to transform a hex blood they created into a new hag, yep. either one of its own kind or that embodies the hex blood's nature. And they have to both consent and sort of go through this long ritual. But I, I thought that was a kind of interesting piece of uh, lore that could be used, you know, by yeah. adventure writers or others. Yeah, I really like that. I'm, I love seeing sidebars like that where it's not something that's player driven. It's not something that's DM driven. It's, hey, work together and tell a cool story. Yeah. And yeah. I and I think that that consent piece could be removed if you're talking about an NPC, right? The hag could have some special yeah. reason why it's doing it to somebody and now you must save them and stop it, right? And that's where you are heroes able to stop this mm -hmm. vile hag doing this thing that should not be done. Exactly. Um, so it gives you a lot of, it, it's an interesting little, little foothold, a little extra mm -hmm. bit of lore. I like it. Yep. And the final heritage is the reborn. Death isn't always the end. The reborn exemplify this being individuals who have died yet somehow still live. Uh, so you could give this to anyone who went through a re revivify or raised dead. You know, you could do lots of things with this. Uh, and w did you have any th thoughts on the overall theme? Well, it's also a great, they, I don't think they say this, but it's a great excuse to bring back the first player that dies, right? Mm -hmm. Like the first character that dies, not player, don't kill your players, yeah. but the first character that dies, um, offer them that ability to come back as a reborn, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to offer this to characters. And so if they want it, then the player could say, yeah, I want my character to come back as a reborn. And then that can be kind of a cool shock to the rest of the party when you show up again, but now you're changed. I think that's a pretty cool idea. Yeah, it is. Uh, the mechanics of it, deathless nature is is the brunt of what you get. So you have advantage on saving throws against disease or being poisoned, and you have resistance to poison damage. Uh, you gain advantage on death saving throws. You don't need to eat, drink, or breathe, and you don't need to sleep, and magic can't put you to sleep. You can finish a short rest in, or a long rest in four hours while being conscious the entire time. And the other ability is knowledge from a past life. You temporarily remember glimpses of the past. When you make an ability check that uses a skill, you can roll a D6 immediately after seeing the number that you rolled on the D20 and add that D6 to the check. Uh, you can use this feature a number of times equal to your proficiency bonus and then regain all expended uses after a long rest. Uh, th those are the two main abilities, the only two abilities of mm -hmm. the Reborn, uh, which made me think I like the theme, and I'm usually the last person to say something is underpowered because I'm always worried about something being overpowered. But when you compare that to the Dampier, that's that's nothing. <laughs> well, and um, I forget. Uh, is an attack roll also an ability check? No. Uh, initiative is an ability check. And it's just, is yeah, that. okay. So then, then yeah, because you're you're just boosting skills, which is okay, because it would be really strong if it was affecting attacks. So yeah, yeah, it, it's a bit, it's a bit weak. I mean, and maybe that's that the damn fear is a bit strong. Yeah. So I mean, it's I don't hate it. It's just 
if if you are a gamer who takes something and you don't want it to be underpowered compared to everyone else and everyone else is playing a damn fear and you're playing this it seems to me a little bit on the weak side but I, you know where I where I wouldn't think it's it's weak is if we had rewritten this to say if if wizards had said normally you only become a reborn during play mm-hmm. and it's how you get to come back mm-hmm. right and so then it's okay if it's a little weaker cuz hey you kind of got a second chance right right um the, the the dark powers could sort of return you to life as a reborn Mm -hmm. Um, and you don't need any resurrection spell or anything like that. You know, this can just happen if the DM and player so choose, then it's okay to be a little weaker, could even be weaker than it is. Um, because it'd be sort of a get out of jail free, get out of death free card. Um, and then it could also be, well, if you want to start this way, that's of course, okay. But, but we're more so intending it to function this particular way. Yep. So those were the three, uh, lineages any thoughts overall on them no i I think they're good it just that that what we said before that they're a little fantastic and um so it just is what it is and and as you said you know you want to think through that in a campaign of whether it's okay to be not mundane because i agree with you that in my horror games i I tend to think of it as it's good to start mundane like in a call of cthulhu scenario and and then gain powers and knowledge and, and have it operate like that there you go. So your mileage may vary, but that's where we come down on the lineages. Next presented are dark gifts. These dark gifts are intended for starting characters, but characters who don't choose one might be presented with opportunities to gain a dark gift as their stories and circumstances unfold. This to me goes right back to the discussion we just finished, which is, do you want to come into the game with this power, I would rather have it be a choice that's made, a temptation that's made, rather yeah. than having it right from the start. And it's cool to have secrets. It's cool to have role-playing hooks. You don't always have to add mechanics to those. Yeah, I was very surprised by to read this because I I, I would have like to have seen it written the, in, in almost the reverse, which is that in a rare exception, you mm-hmm. might think to start this way. But in that case, think through why this makes sense, right? But normally, the whole point of this dark bargain is that it's an offer that you can refuse right. and that there's that danger to it. Um, the other thing that that we'll see in these is that the, the way they work, because be, these things began in the Ravenloft 5e Curse of Strahd adventure in the Amber Temple. There are these encased dark beings that are sort of they're, they're, they're figments that are captured of the remains of some vast power that are in, in, in locked in, in Amber. And they offer these gifts and they don't exactly tell you much about them at all. And so you are really taking a chance. And some of them are stronger than others. They're not necessarily balanced, but that's okay because the whole point is you don't know what you're getting. In this version of the rules... It, the way I read it is that you are supposed to know. It says the particulars of the dark gift and how it affect the character must be clear to a player before they choose whether or not to accept. Mm-hmm. And that's where I'm, like, I, I understand that we are trying to honor the player and not like ruin their character. But I don't know that it becomes then often it's going to be a choice around power gaming and fit. 
right. mechanics and things like that rather than story. And right. especially if you're going to start with it, then it's literally like choose a build option, right? And yeah, I don't yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if horror takes the power out of the player's hands and makes them react to it, telling everyone what the dark gift is is literally, as Teo says, just a just a way to add some more power to your character or not. Uh, so it's. In, in that sense, then you want them to be balanced, and these definitely are not against each other, um, yeah. as, as I'm about to discuss. Yeah, and, and I, when I first read the first couple, the first two, I think, are, have the exact same sort of structure and how they operate mm -hmm. um, with, like, when a, sort of the quote-unquote bad thing happens. And so I was like, oh, okay. This, they, they all use a formula. So mm -hmm. we always are building against this formula. That makes it easy to compare them. But then quickly I realized, oh, the other ones don't use the exact same formula. They're very different formulas. And while I like that there's freedom in the design, what that means is especially when you let characters choose, they are going to choose the ones that fit the fit to their class because classes are so different and, and play styles are so different. And when you add that to that, the bonuses can be things that you can optimize it becomes a little dangerous. And, and I, what I liked about the ones in Curse of Strahd is that you generally were not going to optimize this. And, and neither was it going to be possible to optimize it, nor is it the kind of thing you would optimize. These, right. you can't say that about. Yeah, it's true. Let's give two examples. Uh, so the very first one mentioned, the very first dark gift mentioned, is Echoing Soul. So your soul isn't your own. At least it wasn't always yours. So with this, you essentially have another soul inside you, or you are this other soul. And I just uh, want to say, this is another example of where the write-up, to me, speaks to somebody that is being generated with this power mm -hmm. rather than gained it, which I think would should, in theory, be the more common thing to happen. Right. Um, because then we should, then I would write this text would all be written differently to say, you know, a dark power gave you this bargain. The moment you accept it, you feel another you out there. Right. And, and instead it's like, hey, your soul isn't your own or it wasn't always. Your, well, that's like a past tense thing that you've always dealt with. You know, it's just. It's, right. Yeah. It, it does. And it does make a difference, a huge difference in the character and the campaign. Yeah. So, you know, it, that's a big difference. Uh, mechanically, though. The, the uh, echoing soul, what does it give you? Well, it gives you two uh, skills that you become proficient in and one additional language. Okay. You know, not overpowered, mm -hmm. but, but okay. What's the, what's the downside? The downside is called intrusive echoes. When you roll a one uh, on an attack roll, and I think saving, is it more than yeah, that? Village check or save. Yeah. So save. when you roll a one on any of those things, you roll a D six and, something happens one through five are bad and very bad as in like you become incapacitated uh you're blinded you are frightened you become charmed by a creature on a six though you get to re-roll that one yeah so so that's that's a lot of bad potentially happening uh, and honestly, in the right campaign, I think this is totally cool. Oh, absolutely. It is a little rough. But if you're happy with your character, if, if you see this as a horror game, the way one does at Call of Cthulhu, where generally you either go insane and are become a, a controlled by the DM or you uh, die, 
Yeah. And those are the usual outcomes. Very rarely does one win in Call of Cthulhu. If you think of it more like that kind of a game, then these are fantastic, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you can really lean into them. And, mm -hmm. and you know, it, it's, it's a good uh, negative to offset some positive possibilities. Okay, cool. And then as you go down through, there's one called Touch of Death. And I was like, okay, let me see what this does. Um, so your pain, your touch is pain, harming whoever you come into contact with. The deathly power within you is beyond your control, afflicting any who touch your bare skin. By the same token, you can deliver death to your enemies with your touch. And I'm like, okay, this is potentially cool. Let's see what the positives and negatives are. So I go down to the, the three things it gives you. The first is called death touch. Uh, as an action, make one unarmed strike. On a hit, your target takes an additional 1d10 necrotic damage, and that increases at 5th, 11th, and 17th. So by 17th level, your unarmed strike is doing 4d10 additional damage plus your unarmed strike, which is probably not much unless you're a monk. Uh, now, if you, um, if you take this as a monk, even at first level, you're doing, with your unarmed strikes, an additional 1d10 damage every time you hit. And now it does seem to be only if you do this action, the death touch action, but it, right. you could still then do your normal attacks as say like a bonus action afterwards, right. or it's still, it's still strong, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a thing. And so I'm like, wow, that's really powerful. What, what's going to offset this second <laughs> is when you hit a target is inescapable death. When you hit a target with an attack roll and deal necrotic damage, you ignore the target's resistance to that damage. All right, so now you're punching undead and doing necrotic damage. Okay, that's not as powerful, but in Ravenloft, that is. Right, that's powerful in Ravenloft where there's lots of undead, lots of things with immunity or resistance to necrotic damage. All right, so this last thing must be the big negative. Oh, yeah, here right? it comes. Withering contact. <laughs> when you start your turn grappling a creature or grappled by it, the creature takes 1d10 necrotic damage. I'm like, wait a second. And so I'm scrolling down. I'm like, where's the negative? Uh, there is none. I wonder if they forgot it somehow. Yeah, I, I don't know. But so as the DM, you can say, well, anytime you touch someone, that's bad. But there's no you it know, mechanics say that, to yeah. it. And, and so all the player has to say was, well, I always wear gloves. Or I always have all my skin covered. And then any sort of negative that might come from that is sort of hand-waved. And, and the word seems to be that you're focusing your deadly touch. So, so you're deliberately causing damage and maybe someone touching you. It, it doesn't, nothing here says that touching you actually causes damage. It might just feel terrible. Right. So, yeah, there's no drawback yeah. whatsoever, right? Which is yeah. really, really interesting. Yeah. So when you have those two you know, extremes of dark gifts, it it sort of flies in the face of what I thought they should be, you know, which is you're trading a, a positive for a negative. It'll be a wash in the long run and tell a cool story with, and this, yeah. de this death touch, you know, touch of death is, isn't even, isn't even the coolest story that could be told. No. Right. And, and there's a lot of, there are a number of, options here that don't seem balanced and, and, and I don't quite understand the, the, the approach. So voices from beyond, for example, has a, uh, or, uh, sorry, it's living, was it whispering gathered whispers? That's the name of okay. it. Gathered whispers. When you have gathered whispers, 
the sort of negative mechanic to it is a D4 table, whereas the first one we talked about had a D6 table. And so in this case, one out of four times, you're getting the positive result, which is to be able to cast an augury spell within the next 10 minutes for free. Um, and I don't, you know, like that's a one out of four positive mm -hmm. and the negatives are not quite as bad as the ones for the other one. And so it's just sort of like, well, and especially if you let characters choose or deny them, you know, your monk is just going to deny everything until they get the necrotic one. <laughs> right. <laughs> no dark power. I say no to that. But if you offer me another one, right. maybe. touch of death that I'd take. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. It's... Yeah, it's, it's interesting. But I, I, and what I would say here to DMs is take a look at these, play with them, uh, bring them in in the way that makes sense for, for you and your players, that it's going to be fun. Um, you know, don't just be wedded to this design here because it, it's a little, I don't, I don't quite understand it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, next, I, we still have the two subclasses and the backgrounds to go through. Shall we do this next time? Uh, it's up to you, Sean. We could also just really lightly go over the subclasses. It's up to you. Okay. Well, let's let's do it then. Okay. Let's do it. Uh, the first subclass is called Bard College of Spirits. Uh, it, you are in touch with spirits, and they speak to you with uh, through tales of things they've seen and allow you to use that knowledge uh, for your own good. Yeah, and something right off the bat that hit me here, because I've seen this a couple of times, it doesn't happen very often, but but it does happen. It says you can use the following object, objects as a spell casting focus for your bard spells, a candle, crystal ball, skull, spirit board, or tarot deck. It doesn't say I start with those. True. So do I have to buy those? What do the crystal ball cost? You know, yeah. what is a, you know so it's it just, I wish it would have just said, and you start with it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody has a skull, right? So there you go. <laughs> I use my own skull. I use my own skull. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Uh, so what are some of the things? Level three, you get guiding whispers. Uh, you learn the guidance cantrip, uh, and it doesn't count against your bard cantrips. And you can do it at 60 feet rather than uh, a touch spell. Uh, level three, you also get spiritual focus. That's the using those objects that Teos mentioned. And... Uh, Starting at sixth level, when you cast a well, bard and can spell. Can I just say oh, here, yeah. this mechanic is very, to me, is very interesting. The the tales from beyond piece, mm -hmm. um, because you spend a bonus action and a bardic inspiration, and you roll on this table. Mm -hmm. Now this table is kind of active, and it's yours until you take a shorter long rest. You can then use an action and choose a target within 30 to then impose the tail upon that creature. So it's sort of a weird amount of optimization that it's kind of entailed. Yep. And I understand what it's trying to do mechanically that it can be either negative or positive, And so then you enact it. Um, but it also then lasts um, a certain amount of time, depending. Well, it, it, it lasts until it is used. Sometimes it has additionally duration. So it's, it's a little bit weird in how it tries to handle so much with this mechanic and i'm curious as to how this will play uh at the table using it uh it, it also is possible that people would want to redo it outside of play so sort of roll it you know, it's, it's bound by your bardic inspirations but it may be important enough that someone sort of does it before combat ever begins 
and then goes, eh, I don't like it. I'm going to spend another bard inspiration. Oh, that's the one I want. It gives two people temporary hit points or something like that. Yeah. And then in combat, you activate it. Yeah, it is a several-step process that can, again, be time it can be time draining as yeah. you roll this die, roll that die. Who do I give it to? What's the best option? It's a positive one. Oh, I'll give it to this player. Oh, it's a negative one. Well, I'm going to save it maybe because the next monster we fight, we know is going to be this sort of creature. It's, it's a little more involved uh, yeah. than the here, take this die fighter right. and, <laughs> and make sure you hit. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't hate it. It just, it's, there are several steps in the process. I also think in general, most of the options are stronger than bardic inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is a bit of a thing. And uh, Bardic Inspiration was sort of the, the iconic Bard thing, maybe. Mm -hmm. And and I feel like a lot of the Bardic subclasses undermine that a bit. Yeah. Now, if you're into, like, rolling the random craziness and and mm -hmm. seeing what happened, this is, this is you know, if you're wielding the Chaos Wand of Wonder, high. yep. Uh, yeah. Level six, you, uh, well, that's what we just talked about. Spirit Session, right? Yeah, you can do, yep, the channeling spirits. Okay. And you, they can give you a spell uh, of any class that you learn that has to be based on how many people are part of the ritual, which doesn't seem to matter because you do it during a short or long rest. Mm -hmm. um, so, okay, it's a way to get a spell yep. that you need. Some flexibility, kind of cool. Sure. Uh, level 14, Mystical Connection. Whenever you roll on that spirit table we just talked about, you can roll the die twice and then choose the effect to bestow of the choices you rolled. If you roll the same number on both dice, you ignore the number and then choose any effect on the table. Mm -hmm. This is weird because as you might expect, the higher numbers are more powerful because you're going to, you won't be able to roll a 12 unless you're rolling a D 12 as your bardic die. But if you're only rolling a D six, well, yeah, you have to get the 14th level before you can do that. Never mind. I talked myself out of that point. Um, <laughs> but anyway, it's if you do roll the same number on both dice, then it becomes a look through this laundry list of things, which yeah. one's best. And then everyone in the party, if you have, you know, kibitzing players are like, oh, no, choose number seven because you can. Oh, but if you choose number eight and do it on me, then right. I, you know, it, it becomes a whole thing. If you're, into, if you're into tactical play, great. If you're not, it becomes a sort of a time sink. Whew. So that well, was... Oh, go ahead. Yeah, the College of Spirits. I was going to yeah. say, Warlock the Undead. To me, the thing that I want to talk about with this one is the fact that right off the bat at level one, it makes you immune to the frightened condition. Why would we do that for a horror campaign? Yes. <laughs> that was my thought as well. I kind of can't see anything past that. I get to this and I go, why is this in this book? Like, And I understand it somewhat thematically because you're all about the undead and your patron is something like... I don't know, a Sarerac or Vecna or something like that. But like, why would you make you immune? There's another piece that I don't like, which is uh, around necrotic damage. But but just this one, immune to the frightened condition. I would recommend that if you're going to run a, a horror campaign, change that. Like give advantage on saving throws maybe against the something that would cause frightened or something like that because you're a little more hardened. But yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and it's the same thing. Well, it's the same discussion we've been having. You, you you have to choose this at first level because it's a warlock pact. If you're going in as a lover of the undead, 
is this really a horror campaign for you? Or is this like the best thing ever? <laughs> I, I just, <laughs> I, it loses the horror effect to me. And this just becomes sort of a grim, dark, you know, we're living in this horror realm and we're all about it. So yeah. it, overall, it doesn't, I understand why it's there. This is a great one for NPCs. <laughs> I want to see monsters like this, not uh, not player characters yeah. like this in a horror. The other thing that's interesting about this one is it has this ability to do a spirit projection uh, later on. Um, yeah. And that always is a sort of weird, like you have to store your body somewhere. And it's vulnerable while you stash it. The good thing is when it ends, and you get benefits for going into this sort of spirit form, sort of an astral form type thing. Um but at the end of it, then you can either go to the body or your body comes to you. So that's good. So no one can kidnap your body, but, um, your body could be hurt if someone stumbled upon it. And I just, I'm always, yeah. that, that interaction yeah. worries me for proper play. Yep. I like, I do like this idea of transforming. Um, mm -hmm. so the first level thing is form of dread, uh, as a bonus action for one minute, you transform and then you gain these benefits for the minute. I like these sorts of subclasses because it's sort of like the barbarian rage. Uh, but for me, it's even more, it's, it's nicer for players that like to play in two different modes, right? I'm mm. a warlock, so I'm going to stay back and I'm going to shoot things with my death rays. Oh, but something's in my face. I'm going to go into this mode play. The play is going to be different, but I still enjoy it. And so I can yeah. go back and forth between these two different modes. I like those because they they let the player that wants to do it do it, and the rest of the players don't need to worry about it. Uh, but just as as we mentioned, the sort of flavor of it fitting into a horror yeah. campaign doesn't jibe with me. Yeah, and, and um, it, it is limited by your proficiency bonus number of times. Uh, but but it's still it's it's that kind of thing of it's temporary hit points and you can give off frightened and you're immune to frightened. I just I don't love the the choice of what it's doing. Yeah. But I like I, yeah I, I do like the idea of the transformations. Um. So interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh. And then backgrounds. So I'll let you cover this. Bring us so home. So one thing I think is super cool about these backgrounds is the first thing. This is I don't think any book has done this before. It gives us general background features. And we get five new features. These are not backgrounds, but the features of a background that can replace the feature you got in an existing background. So you might be the soldier or the noble or you know any of those other typical backgrounds. And you can now swap in the feature. And the features are inheritor, where you are related to somebody important that might be recognized and people might see you as hero or villain as a result. Uh, mist Wanderer, where the mists whisper to you and you can recognize a mist talisman that allows travel through the mists by touch. Spirit Medium, you can serve as a conduit for spirits. You begin with a custom device. Um, some of this is a little weird. It's not entirely clear to me if I use a cup for tea leaves. What can I do with that? It doesn't really tell me, but it is some sort of device and I get to add my proficiency bonus to checks with them, whatever those checks may be. If it's a Taroka deck or spirit board you choose, then it's a little clearer. All right. So I like that. I like that uh, idea. Yeah. And trauma survivor is you've suffered a terrible event. 
Uh, you can convince sympathetic doctors or others to shelter you. And Traveler, you come from another land. This one's a little strange in that usually I think we come to Ravenloft from what we consider the normal world, right. you know, Forgotten Realms or something like that. Um, and so the idea that you will, you you come from another, another land somehow differently than everybody else yeah. in a way that other people who are from other lands and are like refugees or travelers sense it and want to give you shelter, but not the rest of the party who comes from another land, but right. not a another, another a land. A different other land. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that one's it, a little, it is a little, doesn't make a um, of sense. Yeah. But, but I love the feed, the concept of, of, you know, swapping out like your, your noble benefit to be mm. an inheritor is super cool. And they add later in the sidebar, this idea that if you've played like curse of Strahd with your group before, this could be that you are an inheritor of something that that character gained. Mm -hmm. And so you can establish a legacy or if you run another Ravenloft adventure, you know, you can link characters this way, which is, I think a really neat idea. That is. Then we get our horror characteristics. So if you're familiar with the background process, you go through all these personality traits and ideals and bonds and all that. So we get new tables that replace those. Super cool idea. Mm -hmm. So that you can roll on these instead of whatever you normally would for your background. I think that's super cool. Um, and there are some fun ones in these that, again, will lead to better horror games. Super cool concept. And then we actually get two new backgrounds. Um, one is called Haunted One. You are haunted by something terrible. You get two skills, two languages, equipment that kind of fits a monster hunter type person. It's kind of a neat little set there. Monster hunters pack. Um, and then you get to roll on the harrowing event that led to being haunted. And we've seen a, this a lot in this chapter, which I really like. It, it gives you concepts for why you ended up here. And so this is, again, really good stuff. Uh, you opened an eldritch tome, saw things you shouldn't have, and they're burned in your psyche. It's what every parent warned us about. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> we're all haunted once, yes. according to our parents. Um, and then the feature is Heart of Darkness, which is common folk can sense what you're going through and will help you even taking arms for you, which I thought was pretty unusual for wow. a feature. Uh, investigator, great idea, right? Just fits so perfectly. You seek the truth. This is just, it felt like X-Files, every word I read. Right. You know, you're seeking clues and answers. You get two skill proficiencies, the disguise kit and thieves tools proficiency, and then a few equipment items. A table gives you information on the first case you had, which started you on your path. I love that. And then the feature is official inquiry. You gain access to a place or individual related to your investigation. And I love they say law enforcement has opinions on you. They may help or hinder you. So they, you know, it's sort of just like Mulder and Scully, right? Like they, they may think that you, they need to help you on the side, or they may be like, oh, here come these people with their completely off the wall ideas. Let's get in their way and That's be obstructive. Great. Yeah. What, when I played uh, Curse of Strahd, I played a skull, moldy sculler. That, that was the name of the character, moldy sculler. Uh, you know, a combination of those two as a right. total investigator, but skeptical at first and then, you know, realize what was going on. So this, fit, awesome. I wish that had been around then because it would have fit perfectly. Yeah, that's great. And the last thing is a hundred, the table of a hundred horror trinkets that you might have started with, which I think is really perfect for this kind of a setting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, it's neat. I think that the great use of trinkets that then can be used by the DM in some way. There you go. So that was chapter one. Yeah. Overall pretty strong, right? I thought it was, you know, we, we, we have our little bones to pick as 
mm-hmm. designers, just as anyone would have anything we created. Um, but overall, I, I, I feel like there, this is interesting developments in how a chapter one is done for this yeah. kind of book. Yeah, the biggest question is not what's there, but how you use what's there, mm-hmm. whether you let it happen as the campaign continues or if you start right off allowing the players to be these things. Um, yeah. That's what you have to grapple with as the DM. All right. Well, thank you, Teos, for sharing your expertise with us as always. Thank and you, thank Sean. you. Thank you, listeners, and thank you to our patrons. Um, if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash MMP to become a patron. Uh, Teos, where can people find you on social media? You can find my blog at alphastream.org where you can subscribe and keep up to date. You'll also get something free. And you can find me on Twitter at AlphaStream. How about you, Sean? You can find me on Twitter at Sean Merwin, or you can go to the forums at forums.misdirectedmark.com to give us your thoughts and questions. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Teos, now that we have braved the PCs of Chapter 1... What are we going to do now? We're going to get ready to kill some monsters in a domain of dread of our own creation. Which is coming up next. Next.